0: Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of the book club series where we feature a book each month and have a conversation with some of the incredible authors in our network. Enjoy the conversation and you can check out all of the great books and resources on our website,
1: www.redletterchristians.org. Well,
2: everybody check this out before we get going, grab your books that we're, we're talking about when everything's on fire, faith forged from the ashes, uh, With Brian, Uh, but before we get going I just wanted to say that coming out of Easter and Holy Week there were a string of executions and a lot of you all have been really tuning into this they were there was one uh, that happened in Texas, um, another one that was postponed in Tennessee Oscar Smith so we're still praying that that execution will be stopped. And some of you, and there's, there was one in South Carolina, Brian, you might've seen this. They just brought back the firing squad. The first execution was like a week from now and it was canceled too, or it's, it's postponed. There's, you know, so people are challenging the firing squad, but all that to say is we've got these shirts that uh, we marched with. It's connecting Jesus with the, you know, the death penalty. It's Jesus kind of with the crown of thorns and the electric chair, and it's got the blessed other peacemakers for they, Uh, or blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy on the back. So these are on our website if y'all want one. A lot of people wanted them. So, um, but we're also praying about Melissa Lucio's execution. Uh, That's in Texas. Uh, She was wrongfully convicted of killing her two-year-old daughter who died in an accident in their home. And now she's facing uh, the death penalty for that, her execution scheduled on Wednesday. So there'll be a lot of stuff happening this week. It's going to be one of the most ho- high profile innocence cases in the country. So please keep that in your prayers, everybody. And i um, sorry to start with that heavy stuff, but um, that's, that's on my heart. Um, You're doing good
1: work, Shane. Doing good
2: work. Thanks, buddy. Um, and uh, just a couple other things are we, we're going to do morning prayer. We do it every uh, first day of the month. And we've got Jenny Yang who will be with us talking about welcoming the stranger hospitality to the stranger. So it's actually on May 2nd, this month, instead of May 1st. So um, keep an eye out on our socials for that. Join us on May 2nd. Uh, And then our book club for next month is going to be really powerful. Um, It's a compilation of essays by people around the country with the poor people's campaign and uh, Reverend Liz O'Harris edited it. So, uh, we'll, we'll put out that on the socials and we're going to do a faith forum with the poor people's campaign with Reverend Barber and Reverend Liz O'Harris Harris uh, next month. Cause we're building up to the March on Washington in the summer. So yeah, a lot going on. Hallelujah. So here we are, we are with Brian on one of my favorite brothers and writers and Katie's been reading me this book at night, Brian. Um, and uh, we we've been really, really loving it. So
0: the um, real reason I'm on this is because he didn't read the book. I did.
1: <laughs> Division of labor. You
0: no, know? <laughs> nah, I actually saw it on his desk and just randomly picked it up because I loved the cover. Right. And I, I started reading it and just fell in love with it. So
1: that makes I've not know.
0: read any of your other stuff, so the, this was great.
2: She liked the cover, but then she started reading it and she liked the stuff inside the cover yes. as well. So. Uh, <laughs> But do um, you want to start, or you want me to you start?
0: Will. You can
2: start. So, for folks that you know, I, I never assume that everybody's done their homework. But um, this book, when everything's on fire, is uh, it's a great timely book for for right now. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to start by saying you you, you sort of. Um, have a really nuanced and beautiful approach to all the deconstruction that's happening, you know, and I think you and I have, you love music, Brian. And I, I think mm-hmm. I've told you before, you know, there's some versions of deconstruction of Christianity that are like, uh, someone went to a bad concert and gave up all music, you know? Um, but the, yeah. the, a bad concert doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. leave, you know, scars and permanent, uh, uh you know, memories of, uh, or or uh, trauma or whatever, but there's a lot of things that need to be deconstructed. But if you just deconstruct, you're left with a mess, right? right. <laughs> so I thought we could start there because you talk about it, you know, as you kind of launch into your book.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't deconstruct forever and have anything left. I mean, there needs to be a, a, where to start. The, the word deconstruction is uh, is. N- I have my own experience of coming into the faith and then in midlife, realizing that I needed a better faith. I didn't need a better savior. I I I wasn't, you know, wanting to turn away from Jesus. I just needed to find a Christian faith that was worthy of the Jesus that saved me and fascinated me uh, when I was, you know, a teenager. So I have my own I have my own experience of going through that process but this was done before the term deconstruction came into vogue deconstruction in fact is a term that we borrow from Jacques Derrida french philosopher that dealt a lot with language and things like that and he really is talking about deconstructing texts and things like that but for whatever re- for whatever reason that became the term that Christians are using presently, primarily Christians from an evangelical background in the North American context, for a critical reevaluation of faith. It's not my favorite term. I mean, I, I do reference it in the book. I talk about it because it's in circulation and I can't ignore it. But uh, the problem is, if, unless you have, you know, some background and some philosophy with Derrida, uh, deconstruction sounds too much like destruction,
2: Mm-hmm. and
1: that we're just here to tear everything down and to just lash out because of whatever, for various reasons. Um, I, but I want to suggest that maybe we are dealing with something that at its core is quite precious. Hmm. And so we, I think that we should be careful. And so one of the, one of the analogies I give in the book is imagining that um, a precious icon, has been discovered, let's say it's somewhere, you know, in the the realm of Eastern Christianity today, when we're recording this anyway, this is Orthodox Easter. And imagine in some, you know, Orthodox monastery, a precious icon of Christ is found, but it's very old. And over time it's, uh, you know, it's been covered with soot and dirt and grime. And there's this patina over it that has obscured the image of Christ upon the icon. But, but you don't throw it away. You say, okay, no, no, we need to restore it. We need to recover this image. And so you bring in the restoration artist. And I don't know anything about it, but, but when you bring in the restoration artist, I'm sure that if you, if you examine what kind of uh, equipment she has in her toolkit, you know, you'll find brushes and solvents and I don't know what all else. You won't find you know, hammers and <laughs> sticks of dynamite. And because we're trying to recover something, not destroy something. And so that's, but, but also, I want to say this, I want to say that uh, the phenomenon, we'll go ahead and use that word, deconstruct, the phenomenon, I think, is actually unavoidable. And it's something that has been building momentum historically for quite a long time. And so I I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression that I'm somehow standing at a distance and throwing rocks at people who are going through, quote, deconstruction, as if I'm just some old curmudgeon saying, stop it. (laughs) No, I mean, I understand that, that people that are experiencing this are really entering into a crisis moment that they didn't actually choose for themselves. It just reached the point where, for various reasons, their Christian faith, as they understand it, or as they have received it, is no longer tenable, and yeah. so something has to be done. And this is why I write the book. I want I want to help. I mean, at my heart, in at my core, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor of one congregation for forty years now. One congregation <laughs> for forty years. And so I just write from that kind of perspective that I want to help people hold under the faith, if it's possible. And I think think it is, actually, I want to help people hold on to Jesus and their Christian faith, even going through the process, though, of critically rethinking and probably restructuring some of their faith.
2: Yeah. And it, it seems like the more passionately you constructed the more passionately you deconstruct and so the more people Mm -hmm. kind of bought into the fundamentalism the more it's almost like reparations right You, you kind of like trying to undo that and uh yeah I've come to think of it kind of like you know we're rehabbing houses in Philadelphia and there's it's it's very much uh there's some houses that are structurally unsound and they need to be just you need to start from the ground but mm-hmm. there's others that look really really bad but all they need is a carpet ripped out and the in the sheetrock and it's it's just uh, it's not really that much work you know <laughs> so but well, I, think I mean that, in know, fact I mean,
1: that's that's one of the analogies i use in the book you can, you can ask Katie to tell you about it <laughs> 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 right.
0: but,
1: but i t- i talked about in one chapter i talk about uh remodeling your theological house mm. and what happens is is our theological house is not it's not one thing and it's not one room. It's more like this sprawling mansion, and so so there there are various rooms. When I began to go about twenty years ago through a through a, I call it my water to wine journey. I, I saw it as a very positive thing, but I was I was having to jettison certain things along the way, certain ways of understanding atonement, certain ways of understanding. You know, eschatology; those things really had to be, uh, but so much remodeled that they were very unlike what they were previously. But other rooms, let's—if you talk about a, a theological house having many rooms—I would say my Christology, yeah, that didn't really get changed. It maybe got visited more. Maybe I added some more. I put a vase in the room or something. Or put a chair oh, yeah. or something. But so, so, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's helpful to realize that, that your Christian faith, your theology, how you think and speak about God is not one thing, it's many things. Mm-hmm. And you can remodel certain rooms and some rooms you may take down to the studs or some rooms you may take down to the foundation, but still you have this foundation and yeah. that you can hold on to that. And so, I was able to get rid of a doom-oriented eschatology that that really I didn't I didn't ever choose necessarily to believe all that stuff. It's just you know I come from the Jesus movement and I think of the Jesus movement mostly fondly. I think of it as as something that was genuine and sincere and pure, but it came with baggage, and one of the more uh, one of the one of the least helpful aspects of the of the uh, Jesus movement was, it was its eschatology, you know, it's, you know, left behind late great planet earth. That was just, that was just all around us. And so when I began to see that for what it was and how uh, contrary to actually the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was, I was able to change, to renovate, to find something better, but not just Say, okay, all of Christianity is a doom-oriented eschatology. So I'm just gonna get rid, I'm just gonna quit being a Christian. I I didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And eschatology is not even a word that I think I've ever heard you say. And so this is another reason that, yeah, I I think it's wonderful that Katie likes this book. And you all that are listening, if you don't uh, really use the word eschatology, you will still like the book. So you're gonna you're gonna I'm not
0: seasoned in the in the uh, book club talk here so i'm just gonna go right in with the page number go in baby because i have a specific question which kind of is what you're talking about
1: i I got my book here i may turn i'll follow you on the page because you don't always remember what you're right
0: absolutely well on page 78 Mm -hmm. this great excerpt from george mcdonald's book and he's talking about a raven
1: oh yeah i love that
0: yeah and so you say yeah and like you were just saying, we, we all have to go on a spiritual journey because we're all born a long way from home. But you, th- you say, we think we are content in our settled certitude because we don't know what we don't know. Our ignorance is bliss. Our satisfaction is sedation. It, but then you go, so God in his mercy sends us a raven, a guide to help us find our way home. Do you think everybody gets a raven? Because it seems like not everybody gets a raven.
1: I, know, I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't speak for God and say this is what God does. A, a little bit of background for those that may not have read the book, although it's a book club, so maybe you have, I don't know. But I'm borrowing from George McDonald's fantasy novel Lilith, which I just dearly love. It is very strange. I, I will grant you that. But you have, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna give it away, but you have this man, Mr. Vane, who needs, he must go on this journey to. Really become who he's supposed to be, and he sent this guide who sometimes appears as a raven, sometimes appears as an old librarian. Um, but your, your question is, do we always get a guide? I, I I don't want to sound too you know like I'm. I just want to say it this way. I actually do believe Jesus when he says, "Seek and you'll find. Knocking you will be open. Asking you'll receive." If you feel stuck. If you feel stuck, you say, I, I, I've reached this point in my faith and it's, I, I can't stay here. Something's not right. Then ask. Mm-hmm. Um, I, can I, I want to tell a story. I'm going to tell this. It's a true story. Um, it's, and I think it's a pretty important story. So let me, let me tell this. I had uh, 20 years ago, I was just, I just, you know, mm-hmm. Word of Life Church, the church I've pastored all these years, this would have been, you know, like half our history ago. It was, it was great. It was big. It's growing. Everything's great. By the metrics that Americans like to measure success, everything's great. But I was having this growing sense of unease. I just felt like, I said it earlier, that Jesus deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Mm-hmm. And I, but I just didn't know where to find it and I I kind of began to read here and there, but I was embarrassingly ignorant of what I would call the good stuff. I mean, it's just just hard to know things if you don't know things, you know, if you just don't know. I mean, I just, I came from the Jesus movement, and then that led us into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't, and that's all I knew, and so I, I began, I just, for lack of knowing what else to do, I began to read some church fathers and some things like that, trying to find a more grounded historic faith, but I knew I needed something more contemporary, and I was very frustrated, and one day, I prayed here in my house. I said, I said, God, show me what to read. Just show me what to read. I don't know. Show me what to read. Five minutes later, Perry walks into the room. She has no idea what I prayed. She just walks up to me, hands me a book, and says, here, I think you should read this. <laughs> it gets stranger. Perry had not read this book. It gets stranger. To <laughs> so this day we don't know how that book got in our house. I didn't buy it. She <laughs> didn't buy it. Somehow it ended up in our house. She found it, she picked it up, looked at the cover, looked at the back, thought, "Oh, Brian might like to read this," and brought and it changed my life and the book is The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. <laughs> but but that book that book was like that was, the do- that was the book that just kicked the door open and led to everything else. Mm. Mm. But I just want that story to say, I mean, I'm not saying, okay, you pray and say, and, and that's going to be repeated. But, but I think if you want to make progress, if you want to continue with Christian faith and you feel like you're stuck, look, ask, seek, reach out. And I think, I think the raven shows up in
2: right. various oh. ways.
1: I don't know how. That that I cannot predict or say, because it's always different for everybody else. Yeah. So, but, but keep your eyes open and ask and pray. And I believe that I believe help will come. I really do believe that.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Is that oh, okay? okay?
0: Okay. I um, think my so, questions are better, but you Yeah, okay. Well,
2: you can have two for my one. How about that? <laughs> um, so for folks that haven't read some of your stuff, I think one of the things that we have in common and why you vibe so well with red letter Christianity is because um, for folks that don't have the theological lens for, you know, a Christ Christology or a Christ centered hermeneutic, those are big words seminarians use, but Jesus is the lens through which we're interpreting scripture. Jesus is the model with, with which we're trying to understand how to live our lives. And you give this order um, of Jesus, the church, the Bible, which is uh, maybe a new way of thinking about things for some folks that have had such a, um, the Bible's the final authority of all life. So I want you to say a little bit about that because the way that you say it's beautiful, by the way, I quoted this in my new book and gave you a shout out. But as you say, it's not that I have a low view of scripture. I just have a high view of Christ.
1: Woo. Tweet that somebody. So, uh, yeah. so say a little so, bit more
2: about how those three interact.
1: So imagine this scenario. Um, some guys at work and he begins to talk about Christian faith and there's another guy at work. That's maybe an atheist, maybe antagonistic and he begins to push back and, and say, well, why would you believe that? Why do you believe that? And our, we'll call our Christian friend, we'll call him Chris. That'll be easy to remember that. And Chris says, well, cause the Bible says, and the man says the Bible, why would you believe the Bible? You know, who believes, who believes the Bible anymore? And uh, this throws Chris into a little bit of a crisis. And so he begins to think, well, why do I believe the Bible? And so he, he goes and he buys some, you know, apologetic books, you know, that defend the veracity of Scripture. And he kind of bones up on it and he reads all these things. And then he comes back and, and, and he tries to then explain, oh, two weeks later to his atheist co-worker why he believes. Uh, that's, that's a very perhaps common scenario but I think it's I think it's misguided and I think it's disingenuous Uh, we as believers believe because we've had our own experience with Jesus Christ and so for me it works like this Uh, I came to faith in Jesus Christ because I encountered him all right so I first of all I believe in Jesus apart from any other supporting structure I just believe in Jesus because I encountered him. All right. And so this is this, you call it mystical, call it whatever you like. Uh, I, I It can't be proven and it can't be disproven. I simply have had my own encounter with Christ. But this encounter with Christ is not completely unmediated. It comes about through the presence of the faithful witness of the church over 2000 years. And so I go, oh, well, so it's the church that's that makes the knowledge and the revelation of Jesus possible to me. And so now I began to think, hmm, the church. And then the church comes and says, hey, wait a minute, BZ. Uh, did you know we have a canonical text? That is, we have a collection of spiritual writings that we have said you must engage with to fully practice the Christian faith. And so that's how the Bible becomes authoritative in my life. But it comes in, it comes in third. First, Jesus, then the church, then the Bible. The problem is with a lot of Protestants, because what happened with the Protestant Reformation, and yes, the Renaissance Catholic Church needed to be reformed because it was deeply corrupt, but what we got mostly was a divorce. And so we have a divorce of, uh, and so we have, you know, and when divorces are ugly and they're messy, and if you got kids, you know, then there's custody disputes, and that's what happened. And so you have some that end up with Catholic mom and some that end up with Protestant dad. And in the divorce settlement, uh, that was the Reformation, uh, Catholic mom really got most everything. And Protestant dad only got one thing. Protestant dad got the Bible. And God (laughs) bless bless Protestant dad. He did a lot with the Bible, did good work with the Bible, because it's all he had. But the problem is, in the end, Protestantism, puts more pressure on the bible than it can bear because it can't even account for its own existence. I mean, how how did we get the scriptures? Did it just float down and we found it one day lying in a field? No. It's given to us by the church. And so, what I think the real problem, Shane, is when we become kind of uh, sloppy in our language and we don't make clear distinctions between Jesus, between well, let's say, let, let let's say Jesus, church, Uh, uh, christianity and bible if we mix them all up and kind of treat them like they're the same at least lots of problems jesus is the word of god the logos made flesh crucified and risen okay we got that jesus the church is the community that gathers around jesus confessing he is lord seeking to follow him okay that's the church then you have christianity christianity is the religion of beliefs and practices that the church develops over time. I know, I know, I know. All kinds of people want to say Christianity isn't a religion. Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. (laughs) That's precisely what it is. And religion as such uh, is capable of producing good things and bad things, but Christianity is in fact a religion. Because if you don't say Christianity is a religion, then what is it? Well, then you end up saying things like it's, well, you say sloppy things like it's a relationship, but no, that's, that's, that's what we have with Jesus. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the religion that develops over time by those that have come to confess that Jesus is Lord, and it's capable of growth and change and development. If you don't understand it as that, then you run the risk of saying uh, reckless things like, well, Christianity is, is the truth, ultimate truth. No, Christians do not confess that Christianity is the ultimate truth. We confess Jesus is the truth. And then Christianity is in the process of understanding how the truth of Christ gets worked into the world and into our lives. And then finally, you have the sacred text within the Christian religion, which is the Bible. But you need to keep these things kind of separated and understand that Okay, the logos who is Christ? He is he 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 is part of the triune God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Christian faith, on the other hand, uh, is capable of growth and development. That that saves us from this predicament that sometimes happens. Yeah. Um, if if you try to make the Bible be more than it is, then you end up fighting battles that one you don't have to fight, and two you're probably going to lose. Because for example, there's the embarrassment that the Bible never gives a categorical denunciation of slavery as an evil institution. Uh, Both Testaments, Old Testament and even New Testament, more or less assume that slavery is just an inevitable institution. Now, if I want to defend the Bible, I can say that most of the time, or at least A good amount of the time when the Bible is addressing slavery, it's trying to mitigate the suffering. And I would even go so far as to say, especially in the writings of Paul, there's sort of a trajectory that you can discern there that'll lead you in the direction of abolition. But be that as it may, the Bible still says in the New Testament, slaves obey your masters. And so then we, you know, if we put too much pressure on the Bible, we feel like we have to defend that. And I've seen well meaning fundamentalist Christians. Forced into a corner, saying, Well, you know, sometimes there's good slavery. (laughs) No, you don't have to do that. What you do is you understand that, yes, the, the Bible, a product of inspiration, but still rooted within its own time, does not seem to have a complete vision for abolition, but the Christian faith, which is this living, growing entity, this tree planted in the soil of Scripture. You, you can't you can't separate Christianity from the soil of scripture, but they're not the same thing. And Christian faith, then as it grows out of the soil of scripture and led by the Spirit, has the capacity to produce entire boughs and limbs and branches of abolition. So, mm-hmm. Shane, I know you do a lot with you know the whole death penalty thing. And I know you're gonna you, I'm sure you do every day. You run up against abolitionists that can show you. The death penalty in the Bible. And so if, if you just equate Christianity and the Bible as the same thing, you say, Oh, I see I see death penalty in the Bible. So that must be what Christians are to believe. No, they <laughs> That is, that is the soil of scripture out of which the Christian faith grows, and then we allow Jesus to be the perfect revelation of who God is. That's Remember, hard. Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse, he says, I have many things to say to you. You're not ready to hear him. You can't bear them yet, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and I think that just presupposes a journey and a growth and a development over time that is inevitable. And so it's, it's, it's easy to look back on church in earlier epochs and be scandalized, offended, and maybe, you know, sort of just castigate them. You know, what was wrong with those clowns? And, but I try not to do that because I then become very conscious of, you know, a church 500 years from now might look upon the church that I'm a part of now and think, well, what's wrong with those knuckleheads? Well, it's sometimes it's just really hard to know what you don't know. And so yeah. we just, we stay on the journal because that was a long rant. I, I'm sorry, I'm going so long. No, it's long. okay. Katie's got she got a, a bunch of questions. Well, of. We're going to have to do
2: a popcorn round.
0: Well, we're talking about the Bible. Seth. Okay, you go. Here we go. You say you're kind of talking about. You say I don't mean that the Bible is a fairy tale. No, that, that there is a holy. It's on one forty-four, but that there is a holy and mature way of reading the Bible. That it's akin to how we read fairy tales. If we read a story about a snake talking to Eve, we can accept it as we accept a wolf talking to Little Red Riding Hood. We don't let the fantastic elements prevent us from hearing the story because it's the story that matters. To be clear, I don't treat all the stories in the Bible as allegorical. For example, I hold the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be a historical event. So when I read this, my little side note is how do you know cuz sometimes,
1: yeah.
0: sometimes i think actually there's many days when it's easier for me to believe that a man lived inside of a whale than it is for me to be believe that jesus is bodily resurrection like some of those things are easier for me to believe than the resurrection and yeah i
2: yeah i can i, am I yeah. allowed to add so i also like the things that you you kind of Seem, I mean, I know you well enough, and I've read enough of your stuff that I know there's some things that you would say, Well, that's a story, you know, like that, that, that didn't really happen that way, whether, you know, it's the uh, uh, serpent in the Garden of Eden or the Jonah and the whale or whatever. But, you know, it, it's a little bit subjective because Katie and I were on a trip uh, with a, a bunch of theologian type folks, and um, someone mentioned Jesus coming back, and, and one of the folks kind of laughed and said, you really believe that like Jesus is going to come back? I'm like, yeah, I actually do believe that, you know? <laughs> so, you know, and there's people that, you know, I mean, not, not just Jesus seminar, but like, there's a lot of um, liberal theologians that say, you know, the, the resurrection is, is a s- symbolic thing. You know, it wasn't necessarily a bodily thing. So anyway, that's just to add to what well, you're saying. Well,
1: I- by the way, I do poke a little fun at the Jesus seminar by name in this book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, OK, first thing I want to say is I am actually not interested in trying to demythologize anything for people that don't need it. Hmm. Look, if you can go through life in a more or less literal reading of Scripture, never be troubled by it, far be it for me to trouble you. I'm not here to do that. But the problem is, is I have to speak to a whole bunch of people at the same time. And, and when you write a book, you know, you you have to decide, okay, who am I talking to here? Well, I'm kind of a presuming that I'm talking to people that may already be, at least in the neighborhood of a critical rethinking of faith. And so here's where I want to help people. That, that, in other words, you don't have to believe in a literal, see, if if you, if you, If you tie people down and say, you have to believe whatever, you'd pick various things. You have to believe in a literal six-day creation. You have to believe that every single animal was literally put on this boat and all of that, or it's all false. Well, that's that's a dangerous move because people may end up going, okay, then I don't believe any of it. So what I think we need to do is, I think this is where, for example... The historic Christian creeds are important. They give us the absolute essentials. Um, you know, I know I see all the time I see churches, they, you know, you go online, you go to the way about us and what our beliefs are. And you, and you read and everybody's written their own statement of faith. And I, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I just think that's just silly. Um, if you, what we do at Word of Life, it's the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We just feel like, who are we to make up the faith? We don't get to make it up. We, it's received, all right. And so, so these creeds that are millennia old, or centuries old, 16 centuries old, Apostles' Creeds older than that, uh, we simply confess that this is what we confess, and these are defining non-negotiables for us, and. But how we read the texts, especially as we go back into the mists of history, into the Old Testament, um, you know, this is this is this is what many of the early church did. I mean, beginning with origin in the early second century. I mean, he is he is showing Christians how to read what we call the Old Testament allegorically. Mm-hmm. And so that's not a new move. That, in fact, that, that, was, that was a practice that was present in the time of Jesus among Jewish rabbis that then the early church leaders, the early church theologians, we call them the church fathers oftentimes, uh, that is the primary way that they began to read the scriptures. And they were most interested in reading the scriptures in search of Jesus, because, you know, when the church first begins, I mean, we're talking Pentecost, we're talking in first century all that. Uh, what they have as for scripture is is what we would call the old testament. They just call it the Bible or the scriptures. And so they go looking for Jesus everywhere. And I, th- I think that's really healthy, actually. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we we don't really read the Bible. We shouldn't, as Christians, read the Bible as, okay, we'll just start off and we'll just, you know, we're gonna read three-quarters of the book before we even get to Jesus. Uh, no, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so we start not with the Bible, we start with Jesus. And we, we understand the gospel message that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, raised again on the third day. That's the core of our faith. And then we start reading the, but we never let go of that. Otherwise, what happens is, is you find people using portions of the old testament to try to countermand what Jesus taught well this is red letter christians what he taught you know on the sermon on the mount i mean i don't yeah. know how many times i've been preaching from the sermon on the mount and then somebody afterwards will say yeah but joshua went and killed all those people and yeah. and and so you do run into problems i mean i'm not i don't want to create problems for people but they're there i mean you're reading yeah. in second samuel and and you read that god commanded Samuel to tell King Saul because of what the Amalekites did several centuries earlier that Saul and the armies of Israel were to go kill and it it lists it it says men women children and babies I mean I mean that's in the text okay that's what it says and so woo. Kill men. Well, okay, you know, you're in battle and men kill one another. I guess, you know, that's kind of par for the course. Women, eh, we're not so keen on that. Women, but children, babies, that's what we call war crimes or genocide. You know, that says, you no, know, you can't do that. And yet the text says that God told Samuel to tell Saul to do this. Again, I, I'm I know that I'm being provocative here, but here's the question. Would you kill babies if God told you to? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, there's only one correct answer to that question. The answer is, I'm not killing babies no matter what. I'm just not going, but that creates the problem. So do you claim a, a, a superior morality to what we find in 2 Samuel 6? Well, perhaps. But here, here is, your, your options are very limited. One, you can question the morality of God. You can say it that way. That that ordinarily people shouldn't kill babies, you know, but if God tells you to do it, you can suspend the ethical and then it's permitted. That's one move people can make. It's a very dangerous. I don't do that. I My conscience won't allow me to, first of all. And secondly, it's a dangerous move because you never know. That leaves the door ajar for further uh, atrocities. Well, God told us yeah. to do. Okay, so if you can't question the morality of it, you can you can question the immutability of God. That's a fancy term for God doesn't change. Maybe God has changed. Maybe the God used to do that, but over time he changes, and now God doesn't do that anymore. We hope. I, I'm, I, you have to understand, I'm actually very orthodox. I mean, I know my critics don't believe it, but I, I'm just like really an orthodox dude as far as like I, I'm not progressive. I'm really not, especially theologically. I'm just not. Um, I, I, I actually believe what the church has always said, that God is immutable, that God doesn't change. So if, if you can't question the morality of God or the immutability of God, what does that leave? It, it, the only other option is we have to question how we read Scripture, and especially the Old Testament. What I'll say is the Old Testament is the inspired telling of Israel's story, of coming to know the living God, but always remember it documents a journey. And over time the assumptions are made. And don't depart from the journey or don't camp at one point of the journey until you get to Jesus. Because what the, the one thing that if we want to talk about the infallibility of scripture, the one thing the Bible I know does infallibly is point us to Jesus. And yeah. so the Bible never asks us of, to have faith in the faith in the Bible. The Bible resolutely points us to Jesus and says, believe in him. And and Jesus himself says that. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they are that which bear witness of me, but you won't come to me that you might have life. And I read that in the Bible.
0: (laughs) Your book reminded me a lot of Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired. Have you read that book? I have, yes. Yeah. There's a very similar idea. And she talked about the rabbis turning the texts Turn it Yeah, and turn, we, like we, we, we
1: communicated a lot in private, yeah. you know, little yeah. messages and yeah. kind of help. one similar another. similar idea,
0: one. like turning it and looking at it and see what everything is in there. You just turn it and look at it differently.
1: But yeah. I, I do want to stress, I'm not out trying to be just a provocateur to, because I see people that do that. I mm-hmm. don't want to trouble somebody about how they read the Bible, but if they begin to have trouble, I want to help them.
2: Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm gonna ask you this from this is Jeff on Facebook. Thanks for joining on Facebook, Jeff, and anybody on YouTube too. I think we got you over there. And uh, but Jeff, uh, he starts by uh saying that your your work has meant a lot to him over the years in the deconstruction and reconstruction of his faith. And um he, he's asking about the the um, prophecy that the kingdom will come, uh and and that um God's shalom did not occur in that generation in the way that many people thought. And so he, Jeff said he kind of spiritualized it. And, you know, the kingdom's coming in a r- real general way. But uh, at, at a certain point, you just go, no, they, they actually thought the end was coming in their generation. Or it seems pretty clear that that's what the gospels were saying. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. So how, how do you kind of move
1: on from that? A couple of thoughts. First of all, I think you're absolutely right. That um, if you read First Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, these are believed to be the earliest epistles of Paul. Um, it's, it's clear to me that he believes the return of the Lord, the parousia, the appearing of the Lord, and the summoning of, of all things is imminent. Like, I mean, you know, don't, don't even worry about getting, if you're married, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. It's, you know, because it's all coming. But it doesn't happen as clearly we know. Uh, but but those are also early epistles of Paul. As you get into, you know, the later epistles, some, you know, I don't get too scholarly, but, you know, some will question whether these are authentic Pauline epistles. I actually think they are. As you get into Ephesians and Colossians and things like that, that sort of falls away. And and if if that troubles you, I just look at my own life and I go yeah, that, that's me. <laughs> when, when I first start, when I first encountered Christ, I was like, oh, but the second coming, The second coming, when's it coming? You know, it's probably in a year or two, but then eventually, yeah, you, you get on with the business of actually living into the kingdom mm-hmm. and embodying this. Now, that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is I think, and I don't know how this will come across, I think, at times, the Christian faith really is a victim of its own success. That I know it's easy to be critical of the church. I have been, I can be, I know how to do that. And there's times for, the, for us to do that. I mean, part of being prophetic is engaging in really serious self critique. I get that. On the other hand, um, there's so much that we take for granted. For example, people talk all day long about uh, human rights, human rights where does that come from? That is actually a product of the church's witness over centuries in Western society. I understand that there's still, you know, uh, atrocities, but at least we can call them atrocities today. Uh, there was a time, you know, when the, when the empires, Roman empire or whatever, you know, would just go and rape, pillage and plunder. And we just call it, that's the way the world is pal. Uh, Christianity has moved the world in a much more humane direction. Moved, at least we know that, that things like kindness and humility are supposed to be regarded as virtues. And this was not something that was necessarily assumed in the pre-Christian Greco-Roman world. Um, now, the, the, the question is, as people begin to turn away from that, turn away from Christian faith, can they still hold on to that? Because I really think in, in some sense, uh, much of Western Europe being post-Christian is still barring on the, on the, on the Christian capital that it had inherited. So I'm not actually as pessimistic or at least as maybe as critical of the church. Um, I, you know, I confess that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I, I can, I believe that I believe that there is a summing up of all things. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, how it happens exactly i don't know when it happens i don't know but mm-hmm. i but i hold to that and i believe that i mean there's some more sophisticated ways you can think about it uh but I, but i still i still hold to and confess what the church has classically confessed uh that the church very the other thing i want to say about the church very early on thinking that the appearing of christ was imminent and then it doesn't have it doesn't seem to have bothered them mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to have really it, it it there's no evidence that it created any crisis for really anybody other than those early Thessalonians when they're saying yeah but you know some people have already died and Paul writes them a letter and they're like oh okay so they're still in yeah they're still in and uh so um yeah cool yeah I uh we we
2: were noticing uh you know well Katie and I've been talking about this a while is is that uh, a lot of why we have a distorted narrative in evangel- white evangelical Christianity, in particular, is that um, we we've got some of the loudest voices aren't always the most beautiful voices uh, in the church, and uh, right. and and the way that you change the narrative is by changing the narrators, right? Reverend Barber says that a lot. So we need to listen to other voices, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do at Red Letter Christians, right? Is really to to um, Uh, allow some really beautiful voices to be heard and amplify those voices. And so I've I've been inviting people to do like a, a personal audit of the theologians, the books, even the music, the films, like what's shaping us. And you start to notice how many books by white theologians we have, male theologians. And so there's a lot of really powerful women of color and other theologians that have been shaping me. And I wonder if that's true for you, even though, you know, the background of this are the Kierkegaards and the, you know, right. the, the, the Chestertons and all those. But, um, you know, who are you listening to right now? And you who know, are some I've, of those I've voices? tried that to become
1: very intentional about that because I recognize that as a flaw. maybe. You know, I, we, we mentioned Brian McLaren, I think maybe it was before we started recording, but his name came up and he was the first person to sort of just say, hey, BZ, you know, you might want to, and, and, you know, if you're not, if you don't, be, if you're not intentional about it, then, you know, you're not going to do it. So right now I'm working on a book called uh, The Wood Between the Worlds. It's a, it's a book on the cross. You see how the wood between the worlds. And I'm really wanting to borrow a lot, especially from James Cone and, and particularly his book, uh, crossing the lynching tree, but just some general work too. But, uh,
2: Yeah, Yeah, I I did a lot of work with that on the executing grace. You know, I give him a lot of shout outs and that, and that, that was really formative and Howard Thurman and several, Mm -hmm. you know, others that I, and, and, um, you know, I, I think that that's, Part of what's really helpful, what's encouraging, too, is that the land, the spiritual landscape of Christianity is a lot bigger and more beautiful than the sort of colonizing force of white evangelicalism. And so I think that's really important. You know, if you you want to find hope, you get outside of that bubble a
1: little bit. The global future of Christianity almost certainly is not located in Western Europe or Northern America. I mean, it's just not. Uh, I mean, you know, we have our task and we'll do what we can and try to be faithful, but just numerically, I mean, just numerically, uh, if the church is really to have a a, a healthy advance uh, into the 21st century, you know, it's Africa, it's Latin America, parts of Asia, and so, you know, I mean, we might as well just, you know, acknowledge that that is the case. And that we're going to need some, and, you know, and I've traveled the world a lot. And let's see if I can just say something like this. This is where I find some hope. I've traveled the world a lot. And so, and I've tried to mostly be with, uh, with, you know, indigenous leaders. You know, I, I, I haven't done much work with, with missionaries. I'm not against that. I'm just saying that when I go to India, I'm with Indians. You know, I go to Nigeria, I'm with Nigerians. That's who invites me. and That's what I work with. And've you, you, seen this, I've seen this pattern, anecdotally, but I've seen it a lot, where you have first generation converts. I'm thinking in India right now mostly, but other places too. Yeah, I could think in Latin America too, where you have these really kind of pioneering spirit, zealous leaders that against all odds and amidst persecution, plant churches, but then they become very committed to education, and so they they are they don't have much theological, or maybe no theological education themselves. They just they're just called by Jesus and do what they can. But now now, now their children and their grandchildren have been given a really uh, really good theological education, and I'm interested to see with these third and fourth generation Christians mm. in these countries what kind of theological works are going to be produced
2: yeah that's a good word that's a good I word find that
1: exciting i mean we're like like really i get excited yeah yeah
2: okay you go go on this
0: is my last question no you you we got it's okay well what you you in the book well i really wanted to talk about your mythical reading of the bible but we might not have time for that but anyway we talked about uh, my second talk- the
1: grace of second naivete
0: yes i like that section and well anyway you talk about how we all need a desert a wilderness Mm -hmm. a sinai where our soul can grow still and then expand so uh, learn to sit in some kind of wilderness until something catches fire well i was just curious what yours are and what you do there what you do when you're there
1: i try to be quiet and, and I mean, I have certain things that I do, you know, I, I like to go on certain hikes or places I sit, I can look out the window and I can't quite see it. But there's a tree out there that has a, a big, it's a big, huge tree and it has a porch swing hanging from it. And I sit there, but I, I think it's, it's cultivating some slowness and some stillness is, uh, is man, it is a, it, that is a countercultural act in the time in which we live. And I mean, I mean I'm working with the story of Moses who 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 sees the bush ablaze and he turns aside and he has the encounter that changes his life. And then you I saw the,
0: the, you yeah, saw the bush.
1: You saw the bush. I in it. your book. I did see the bush. I, I I've been to Sinai and they sh- I, mean, I climbed Mount Sinai. Came down in the morning and a Greek Orthodox monk took us on a tour, cool told us all kinds of things. And at the very last, we walk into the courtyard and he said, "That's the burning bush." <laughs> and I went, "Really?" And he was he was just very matter of fact. Yeah, it's a burning bush. I mean, why do you think we built our monastery here? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and and so I've thought about that and what I say in the book and I believe it. I mean is it the burning bush of course it is it's the burning bush just like that sycamore tree right there is the burning bush if we can just and if we can just find that place in our soul where we begin to open up and realize that it's all a wonder it's all a miracle it's all the gift of god and we are right smack dab in the middle of it and so we begin to you know, we move towards every bush is ablaze with the glory of God. But it it, it starts with at first recognizing there are some sacred places and Mm -hmm. trying to inhabit, whether it's a a sacred place recognized, you know, in a kind of an ecclesial sense, or whether it's just you suddenly discover, did you know that little pond in the park by our house, I found that that's holy ground for me. Mm -hmm. And I go there. And I see the ducks or whatever, and and I'm quiet, and I sense the nearness of God. If you find some places like that, lean into them. You know, the Celtic Christians talked about thin places, places where, you know, sort of the separation between heaven and earth is very thin. And I I think you can find those places, again, if you look for them, and you'll find them. And then once you've found one, visit it. Stay there. Spend time there. Uh, Schedule it. And say I'm going to have some time, and and don't don't try to manufacture an experience. Just go pray a little bit, and then just sit. Just yeah. be-
2: Katie's good. She's she's good at the, the finding the thin places, aren't you? <laughs> I guess. Um, you got another one. You get a well, they, well. not
0: that we can do at the end.
2: Well, I was going to ask you about this because you you tell you a couple of really beautiful stories of it. Almost feels like the the Holy Spirit's. Uh, uh, intervention in different moments. The one on the train where you meet the guy and you both have a, what is yeah, it was the, a great brother. Story. His
1: his, his name is you. you. And, yeah, and 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 it doesn't come across in writing, but if I tell the story, you know, uh, I was with you on the train in, Paris, in uh, Paris on the day that Derrida died. And you can play with it a lot, but.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I
2: mean, do you, do you still believe in sort of miracles? Do you believe in the Holy spirit intervening? You got that charismatic <laughs> side of you still, huh?
1: Yeah, you know, and I kind of wanted to recover that. I mean, I think I needed to walk away from it for a time because it had become unhealthy. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Prosperity gospel and religious nationalism. I mean, the charismatics have done that. (laughs) You know, and so I needed to depart from that world, and I did, but now I recognize that they had a an instinct that is really precious, and that is that God can be experienced. And that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit wants to, to baptize us and wants to make the mystical normative. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book. How, yeah, but and I use the word mystical because I think it has more punch than spiritual. But I understand it, I understand it's a problematic word. But by 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 a mystic, we simply mean uh Someone who seeks and at some level attains an experience with God. Yeah, and that is intensely not only is it biblical; the Bible just sets it forth as normative. It's kind of it's the Bible seems to assume that people will experience God. And ever since Descartes, the Enlightenment, we've been kicked upstairs inside our head, and we're all up here in our head. And I want to call people kind of back down into the heart into the hearth room where there's a wood burning stove and and you sit with Jesus and begin to experience um, the the real presence of Jesus. I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say who the author was. I just finished reading yet another uh, kind of, you know, quest for the historical Jesus, historical critical, would be in the universe of the Jesus seminar book. And you know what, Shane, I'm done with them. I've decided, I've decided I've read enough of those for one lifetime. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've learned some things, and I'm glad that I have learned them. But they now, I can, I can I'm, since I'm not saying what the book is or who the author is, I can say it. They just bore me now. And I really want to turn return to kind of a more charismatic um, pursuit Woo. of seeking to hear what the Spirit is saying, get words from the Lord, pray for the sick, and just yeah. regard that as the normal Christian life.
2: Yeah. Hallelujah. You're speaking my language there. There's a, there's a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of that in the, um, you know, I, I think there. In, when I go internationally, there's a, a healthier mm-hmm. fusion of that and in the historic black church and AME church, like yeah. in some of the Pentecostal worlds I'm in, it's not as wacky as some of the, well, I won't mention names either, but you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> but, uh, I Here's love what it. I found that that people are actually way more open to this than we tend to think. Yeah, that, that if you if you will if you have your own experiences in God, if you if you will tell them honestly and humbly, not in a sense of trying to impress somebody or use it as a way to manipulate people, they're interested because most people really want, to, and, and unless they're like a card carrying committed. Angry atheist, you know, of the fundamentalist evangelical variety of atheists. Uh, most people want to believe in God and want to believe that God can be experienced. And I've oh. also discovered that with, I'm just talking about just, just anybody, anywhere. If they're if you can get them comfortable and relaxed, and you, you're they don't feel like you're trying to manipulate or sell them something. If you ask them this question, do you have you ever had an experience where you thought maybe God was? saying yeah. something to you or, or you experience God in some way, most people actually have something to say. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, there is just, and they'll tell you a story or two if they're, you know, comfortable and relaxed. So I, I think we've been conditioned for whatever reason in this long run through the enlightenment and modernity. I think a lot of Christians in the West have been conditioned to be embarrassed and yeah. be kind of defensive and, uh, and have maybe, intentionally or unconsciously, but made Christianity more cerebral and intellectual and academic than it really ought to be.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think it's part of why I like mother Teresa, she's got that simplicity about it, but there's also the wonder and the sense, I mean, she believed in miracles, you know, she told some stories of uh, miracles and um, anyway, that charismatic Catholic fusion world liberation theology and holy, mm-hmm. oh, holy ghost woo! that's what i'm up for it's been an hour it's been a great hour we've been talking uh when everything's on fire faith forged from the ashes we were coloring outside the lines a little bit talking about other stuff but it's always a great hour when we're with brian's on so thanks buddy
0: We hope you've enjoyed this special Red Letter Christians Book Club conversation. The loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or faithful voices. We know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. So thank you for listening to the Red Letter Christians podcast where we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said.